This podcast deals with mature themes that are intended for an adult audience. The information in this show could be triggering and cause distress for some viewers. If you feel in distress, please seek out help. Please take care in listening. This is the Relationship Review with Delcy Martin. Welcome back to the Relationship Review. Today's topic is a heavy one, so I want to do a bit of a grounding exercise to start. Please leave your eyes open and focus your attention to one point if you like, like if you're driving. But if you're able to, please close your eyes. Focus, take a deep breath in, ensuring that when you do, your belly is pushing out as you inhale. Inhale, and exhale. Please set an intention within yourself and know that you may experience some painful moments during this episode as you're imagining the emotions associated with grief or you're re-experiencing those feelings of grief for yourself. Deep breath in and out, in and out. These emotions are okay. They're allowed and they're even encouraged. Please be kind with yourself and allow for any reaction that you might have. Deep breath in and out. You've got this. Now let's begin. Much like our last episode of Holiday Traditions, grief is a very personal experience and varies across age groups and cultures. For this reason, I'm not going to be analyzing from a single case study, but from multiple ones. First, I'm going to give a general overview of grief. Please remember that we understand grief from a Western tradition, and this is going to be very different from other areas of the world. I'm also going to look at some specialized areas of grief that could affect an intimate partnership like child loss and spousal loss. When I talk about grief, the first thing your mind goes to is death. Yes, for the purposes of this episode, I am focusing on the loss of life. But the concepts and feelings of grief I'm referring to are valid for other losses, like breakups, separation, and divorce. And this is to only name a few. So I bet you're going to recognize a lot of those loss emotions in these other experiences if you've had them. Please take what serves you from this episode. We're all going to experience grief at some point in our lives, and some have already experienced a lot more than others. Let's begin today with a case study. Our clients are James, age 50, and Ben, age 35. They've been married for five years. Ben lost his mom to cancer a year ago. They've come to therapy because James is concerned that Ben is withdrawing from life. He used to love playing guitar and performing at the local clubs, but he's not had interest since his mother's passing. James will often catch Ben crying alone before bed. Although James gets that Ben was close with his mom and the loss affected him, he's worried that he's still experiencing this much grief after a whole year. Ben thinks that therapy could be beneficial, but says that he hasn't had the energy to pursue the referral process by himself, which is totally understandable. 
Many grieving individuals are reluctant to seek out therapy or a support group because they don't have the physical energy or the will to take these steps. We see Ben experiencing just one of many symptoms of grief, loss of energy. He's also showing other symptoms of grief, like loss of interest in his activities and emotions that are mirroring depression. Although more investigation could be warranted, we can be pretty sure in this case that his symptoms are grief-related rather than depression-related because they're directly tied to the loss of his loved one. There's other things that grieving people experience, emotions ranging from depressing lows to anxiety and panic attacks to complete and total numbness, a mental fog, mental fatigue, which results in low motivation, to feeling completely overwhelmed by all your thoughts. All of these things can occur, plus some serious appetite and sleep disturbances and disturbed immune system. Those grieving often isolate themselves and shut people out. They don't see connection and sometimes they can have trouble managing anything other than their basic needs. A really solid description for how grief feels comes from an article by Sorcelli in 85, who said that grief is feelings of depression, intestinal emptiness, tightness in the throat, frequent crying, and a vivid preoccupation with the deceased. Now, as a note, I do not like the phrase preoccupied with the deceased. It feels negative to me. I mean, of course, you're going to be thinking about the deceased a lot. You cared for them. You loved them. They just passed away. I would describe it more as spending a large portion of your time thinking about the deceased. Now, everybody grieves differently. The process is fluid with different intensities of feelings of grief that vary over differing periods of time. It's a common misconception that if you're grieving, you don't have the ability to experience moments of joy. If you do experience said joy, you must feel ashamed because you clearly aren't expressing the proper amount of grief. I hope you catch my sarcasm here. Because in reality, everyone who is grieving has the capability of experiencing moments of joy, even in the very early moments of the grief journey. This joy is healthy and is exactly what's needed to aid the overall integration process. And I'm going to explain my use of that word shortly. The process of grief moves fluidly back and forth between grief state and living with grief state. The goal of grief processing is to put yourself back together as a new person who's incorporated the now deceased person into their life. This putting back together is not as fluid as filling up a glass. It's more like putting together a puzzle piece by piece over a long period of time. It's slow. It's painful. You put a lot of pieces in the wrong place. Hell, there are pieces from other puzzles in there. But eventually you get there. People who are grieving in general feel an underlying pressure from society to get over it, get over their grief, and to be productive members of society. This is evident in company policies that designate a set number of days allowed from work to grieve. And of course, they base those amount of days given on their arbitrary valuation of the importance of the deceased. Gets me every time. Most models of grief include a timeline for the grieving process, with designated year ranges where a person is supposed to achieve a milestone at a prescribed number of years. I don't like this, because grief does not and should not ever have a timeline. I'm very blessed to have a knowledgeable and motivated supervisor. His name is Latif, and he's listening today. 
He created an amazing model that outlines a very fluid process for outlining signs of healing. We need signs of healing because it's important to know if someone is stuck and might need help to process their emotions. He outlined that the grieving should look for signs within themselves. Symptoms of grief, although they're still present, are less intense and they have an ability to enjoy things within themselves without guilt. Look for things within the relationship, feeling connection without pain. Memories of the relationship are realistic, meaning that they're not hyper-focused on only the positive things. They can recognize the challenges. And finally, in the outer world, they're going to have an increased ability to accept support. They begin to regain interest in others. They redefine their identity and commit to living life as fully as possible. In his model, Latif very correctly stresses that healing does not mean forgetting your loved one. It does not mean ceasing a relationship with your lost loved one. It does not mean you will be void of grief emotions, and it absolutely does not mean that feelings of pain are over. Doesn't this model make a huge amount of sense? There's no timelines to complete each component in. It's wonderful. Latif calls the process integration, which I love because it suggests a lengthy and complicated process when in the end, you have an integrated person. You've integrated your lost loved one with your new sense of self. Turning to our case study, we can appreciate the concern that James has for Ben. He loves his partner and he doesn't want to see him in pain. James needs to learn that for Ben, the pain will always be there, though the intensity will change. James, like many others, believes that Ben needs to be on a schedule for healing, for getting the work done and move on. But we now know that grief doesn't work that way. James was right to encourage Ben to seek counseling because his grief could turn into complicated grief and have a more pronounced effect on his life than it already has. Okay, let's have a look at our next case. Doug, age 40, and Nikita, also 40, have a family of three children. Their youngest, Trish, who is five, died suddenly from pneumonia six months ago. Nikita doesn't feel like Doug is experiencing as much grief as her. She states that he never cries. In the last month, he's returned to his job as a mechanic, and he actively avoids any conversation about Trish. She, on the other hand, is only just getting into a routine of showering every morning, and she doesn't feel like she'll be able to think about work for a long while. Doug feels that Nikita has been overbearing to their other children and that she's withdrawn from him. He said that she spends a lot of time crying alone and she's not willing to engage socially. Child loss. <laughs> this was a very hard topic for me to research, especially since I entered the realm of motherhood myself less than three years ago. This is recognized universally as being one of the most painful human experiences. Parents describe it as losing part of oneself. Counselors have found a lot of success in asking grieving parents to describe their loss using metaphor, metaphors that make sense to the client and reflect their lived experience. This metaphor was one of my favorites that I came across, and it came from a study in the Journal of Relationships Research. And it goes like this. Just as an amputee cannot get over losing a limb, a parent can't simply get over losing their child. 
The idea behind getting over a death implies that loss is simply an obstacle, when in reality, it's an enduring pain. So just as an amputee learns to live without their limb, the bereaved must learn to live without the child. Powerful. So just as Nikita is doing, at the very base level, you need to focus on your physical needs, eating, sleeping, moving around. And if you don't take care of those, then it makes it harder to process grief. I changed my tense a lot when I talked during this episode, and it's because I truly don't know who my audience is. And if you are experiencing grief yourself, I want to make sure that you know that I'm talking to you when I'm stressing some of these really important things, especially when it comes to child loss. Soon after the loss, the couple decides if they'll maintain their relationship or not. You have to make a decision for commitment knowing that it'll be a million times harder. Many make this choice based on if they have existing children. In our case study, Doug and Nikita have surviving children. This may be a basis for them to continue working on their relationship. But Nikita should not fall into the trap of focusing all her attention and emotion on her surviving children. They need extra care and attention, yes, but the core relationship of Doug and Nikita is just as important. I went into this study incorrectly believing that child loss was a massive indicator of relationship breakdown. It's not. Encouragingly, one study that I looked at actually found a 71.5% rate of people saying that child loss brought them closer in their relationship. Couples tended to describe very early in the loss that they made an active decision if they were going to let this loss destroy their relationship or make it stronger. Remember, Everyone grieves differently, and one of the early mistakes that couples make is assuming that the other person is grieving incorrectly or is displaying less outward signs of grief than may be expected. This is the case with how Nikita is feeling about Doug. They may also feel a competition for grief where they feel that their partner isn't grieving as strongly as they are. Nikita is interpreting Doug's lack of outward emotion and his ability to return to work and as him not caring. The reality is that grief is not linear, where you display the same amount of grief consistently throughout a time period. The intensity of the feelings of grief can fluctuate throughout the day. Some parents feel intense guilt because they feel that they're supposed to be their child's protector and that they failed them. Men can be especially prone to these beliefs, and this stems from a gender bias toward men being the protectors. This is something that Doug may be struggling with. Those parents that do well after a child loss can acknowledge in themselves and for their partners that the child's death was not their fault and that they did everything that they could have. They may never feel like they did enough, and that's also a normal feeling. It's also harder to process grief if you feel that someone else is responsible for your child's death. And often anger, though it's a normal grief emotion, it can become problematic if it overtakes all the other normal feelings of grief. Almost universally, though, studies showed that adapting to their partner's different grieving process was a large strain on the relationship and was one of the bigger challenges. They described this process as feeling like they were on different paths or having to negotiate how they would grieve together. I want to highlight a concept, personal grief versus shared grief. So you may grieve differently personally than you do with another person. 
Doug is most definitely grieving on his own, in his own way, but he's likely unsure how to grieve with his partner. See, you need to grieve both of these ways. And don't get me wrong, you're still grieving well if you grieve differently alone than you do with your partner. Doug could be falling into a trap of saying, I need to be strong for my partner. This is actually a trap because it's actually counterproductive to what people need to aid the grieving process. People need connection. Your partner needs you to be vulnerable with them and to share in that grief. Private moments are important too, of course, but when you get to the point of living in parallel with your partner as you both grieve, it's not going to speed up this process for you. If one partner is feeling disconnected and lost in their own grief, it can actually be really helpful if that person focuses their attention on their partner and how to make their partner feel good. That action in turn helps them feel good. Following? So maybe in this case, Doug would make a special supper for Nikita. Maybe Nikita's going to buy Doug a book he's always wanted to read. And maybe they're just taking intentional time to speak appreciations to one another. The sexual relationship can also be profoundly impacted. One partner may experience their feelings of loss by being physically tired and emotionally disconnected, which obviously affects arousal. But the other partner may feel a need to have sex to release tension and to connect with their partner emotionally. Guilt is also really associated there because how can I be sexy and feel sexy if I'm grieving such a profound loss? In my sex therapy studies, I'm learning that those who are anatomically male are most likely to use sex to release tension and to find strong emotional connection with their partner, and they do this through sex. Neither spouse here is wrong. The only way that this issue can be tackled is through open communication about sexuality, because these are very private and intimate thoughts that your partner just can't guess at. But in the end, it's all chalked up to communication and shared meeting. There's a natural tendency for talking about the loss of a child to be a subject that's tiptoed around, and we're seeing that in our case study. Many simply try and avoid the subject altogether. The intention behind this is good. They don't want to hurt their partner by bringing up the loss. I get that. But in the literature I reviewed, the relationships that fared best were the ones that described open communication about the subject of their child. Relationships that survived child loss reported having transparent communication, intentional moments for emotional connection, emotional check-ins, and having a shared goal for the future of their relationship. Numerous parents find comfort in maintaining a connection with their child after the loss. Some have a memorial they visit regularly. Some talk to their children when in private. Some carry mementos. And all kinds of grief, spiritual or otherworldly experiences have been reported to be very comforting for those who are grieving. They're not to be taken lightly, but embraced as a valuable part of their spiritual life. Numerous studies report that parents who leaned into their spirituality fared quite well in their grief journey. So, other than spirituality, what else can be helpful for those couples who are experiencing child loss? I don't know how they can possibly do it. These amazing humans find comfort in being able to ascribe a meaning to their child's death. Some do this by turning to spirituality. Some do it by using their child's loss to help others. For those who have specifically chosen to help other parents who have lost children, they describe the experience as transforming pain into love. 
Families report that if you're a staff member or a professional who cared for their deceased loved one, attendance at their funeral, memorials, and giving thank you cards actually left a lasting positive impact on the grieving process. A positive impact, connection. Many couples are unsure though, but the ability of those who have not lost a child to be able to support them. Can anyone really understand the pain that they're experiencing? This is a totally normal and a totally valid question to ask. And truly, the only ones who can understand are the ones who've lost children as well. But those who are grief adjacent and show interest, they generally do want to learn. Group therapy and peer support are the number one recommendation for and from those who have experienced child loss. Survivors agree that it's the support of their loved ones, combined with connection from others who've experienced similar loss, combined with an attentive and supportive healthcare team that make the grief process turn out in the most ideal way. However, what your ideal grief path looks like is dependent on the individual. So two people aren't gonna have the same goals. Doug and Nikita will need to work hard together to have very intentional time to connect emotionally in grief. Maybe this looks like working on a memorial together, starting a charity, or journaling together. If they don't work on intentional time, they need to at least negotiate to be more open about responding to cues that their partner needs to process something about Trish. This will work better if they do this together. With education, Nikita will hopefully see that Doug is not incorrectly processing grief and he's actually struggling as much as she is. This realization will hopefully bring them emotionally closer. They also need to recognize who their support network is and access them. Doug and Nikita cannot be expected to bring the same caliber of parenting to the table that they once did. An intentional time both alone and each other is going to be essential to this process. So it's also going to be helpful for them to connect to a parent loss support group, either online or in person, or at the very least, connect to one other person who has experienced child loss. Of course, I'm always going to recommend continued counseling if needed, and a medication review to see if intervention is required on this level. Doug and Nikita can and will be okay, as long as they can maintain connection to one another and approach the loss of their child as a shared process that they can lean into one another instead of turning away from one another. I reached out to a friend who lost her daughter to suicide, and I did this as soon as I began writing this episode because I believe in the value of lived experience foremost, and I believe in the ability of those who have lost to connect to others who have lost. With her permission, I'm sharing the wisdom that she provided to me. She says that every death of a child is a different situation, but for theirs, they maintain such a strong partnership because they agreed not to blame each other for their daughter's death. They gave each other time to grieve alone, but with the explicit knowledge that the other was always there to lean on. She says that she and her husband live their lives one day at a time now, when at first, it was only minutes or hours at a time. This is such great wisdom, and I'm really privileged to hear it, and I'm especially privileged to be able to share it. And I want to thank her so much for her vulnerability with me. Next, let's look at what happens when you lose your spouse. Our next case study. Lindsay, age 35, lost her husband Logan in a motor vehicle accident five years ago. She began a relationship with Ted, age 40, four months ago. 
She's approached me as a therapist because she's worried that she isn't moving on after the loss in the way that she expected to. She said that she still thinks about Logan every day, and although that she actively tries to shut out thoughts of him when she's on a date with Ted, she really struggles with this, and then experiences feelings of guilt that really dampens the evening. Though Ted knows she lost her husband, he's not aware to the extent that he still enters her mind. She wonders if she's emotionally cheating on Ted, because she still thinks about Logan, and still loves him. She feels that Ted is becoming a serious relationship, and she wants to make sure that she does this right. First, I want to begin with prefacing this section that there is no correct way to do this right, but there's lots of ways that it can be done harmfully. The journey of grief for spousal loss is highly variable and very dependent on age. Somebody who's younger when they lose their spouse may have to contend with young children. The thought of the new relationship and the feelings of guilt associated with building a new life without the deceased. Someone who is older when they lose their spouse can still have the challenges of a younger person, but has the added difficulties of health challenges, financial dependence on the deceased, or maybe they've been dependent on the deceased for all their social needs. One of the earlier things that you have to do is identify your support system. It's inevitable that you're gonna need a lot of help. You won't want it, you won't want to accept it, but you really should. Early on, there's a lot of paperwork and complicated decisions when it comes to funeral arrangements and executing a will. This task is easiest if done on a team. If there's children involved, you're absolutely going to need help with caring for them or at the very least taking short breaks. Your brain cannot physically manage as much as it used to while experiencing loss. There's a speaker by the name of Nora McKerney and she has a TED talk titled, We Don't Move On From Grief, We Move Forward With It. And it is truly wonderful. In it, she talks about the death of her husband and then her remarriage to her current husband. She jokes that he doesn't like that title. She's actually quite funny too. This video was another gift shown to me by Latif and it has dramatically changed how I see grief. I put the link in the video on our Facebook group and I can also forward it to you by email and I'm going to give you my email at the end of the show. I cannot recommend it enough for everyone. But anyway, I digress. In it, <clears throat> she talks about how loss is universal and that everyone will experience it. But we all kind of fall into a couple of categories of people. Those who are grief stricken and those who are grief adjacent. I really love this idea because it gives me a rich visual of where I should be in someone else's grief process, right beside them. She said that of all the people she's worked with, which is a lot, and all of the research on grief she's done, which is a lot, the most irritating statement that those who are grief adjacent make is when they talk about moving on. Moving on with grief. We do not move on with grief. We move forward with it. The grief will always be there. The deceased will always be there. And they're going to become a part of other things that are part of you. Nora said that she's now remarried and she often talks about the deceased as if he's still present. She describes her remarriage comedically as a shared sigh of relief from her family. Whew. Okay, folks, she did it. She freaking did it. She moved on. We can take a break now. Never forget her saying that in the video. She said that this is absolutely normal and everyone else has a 
quote unquote moved on, but her deceased husband will always be present in this reality. He's present because he made her the person she is today, the person her current husband loves. Nora says that your grief for your lost loved one is not counter to the joy you experience in other aspects of your life. They occur at the same time. And this really hit home for me. I think that there's a feeling that if you're grieving or at you're all in or you're not, you're wearing the black, you're displaying a somber demeanor in public, spending lots of time indoors, that sort of stuff. But why does grief have to be a penance? I've worked with a lot of clients who've lost someone, and when they tell me about a fun or exciting event they attended, it's done almost sheepishly as if it's a guilty pleasure that they've experienced. And it's a guilty pleasure that they've experienced a moment of joy during this time. I want you to know that your joy is valid, and I want to know your joy, because your joy is as much a part of your journey as your pain is. Nora ends her phenomenal video with saying simply, this. We don't ask people who are experiencing great joy to move on from their experiences of joy. Yet, we ask people who are experiencing grief to just move on because it makes those who are grief adjacent uncomfortable. Not all wounds are meant to be healed. Losing your partner is one of these. Going back to our case study, I would share with Lindsay the fact that she thinks about Logan every day is very normal, and that although her guilt is both common and understandable, it's not warranted. Her expectations of timeline and what her grief process would look like were clearly very different from reality. She's struggling with accepting what the reality of grief looks like for her. Trying to actively shut out thoughts of Logan while on a date may not be the best way for her to spend her time. She should know that these intruding thoughts are normal and that in the moment, her best strategy will be to simply acknowledge them and refocus her attention to Ted. She's going to need a lot of practice with this, though, and she won't succeed every time. But if she's truly serious about her relationship with Ted, she needs to sit down and have a very open and straightforward conversation with him about how Logan's presence will remain in her life in some way. She also needs to be very sensitive in making room for Ted's feelings about Logan, because he's entitled to those as well. I would even recommend she invite Ted to share his feelings about Logan, which could be done on her own, or it could be done in a couple's therapy session. Yes, Lindsay still does and always will love Logan, but that does not mean that she's incapable of experiencing the same love for Ted. Love is not limited to a single person. Love for her deceased husband does not mean less love for her current husband. Love doesn't work that way. There's a high rate of mortality um, after losing a spouse. And interestingly, this is called the widowhood effect. Reported mortality risk amongst those who've lost a spouse increases by 30%, with the most severe risks being just after the death. But the overall risk can actually last for years. How do these individuals pass away? Finland and Scotland report a majority die in accidental or alcohol-related incidents. Could this suggest a high-risk-taking lifestyle after the death of their loved one? Maybe, but we really don't know that answer. Another study from Finland found a three-fold increased risk for death by heart disease. But the number one reason for death after loss of a spouse? Suicide. Suicide. And this risk is seen in multiple countries. 
I also want to note that if you've lost a loved one, a child, a spouse to suicide, um, like my friend has, coping with the grief from this becomes even more complicated. The symptoms are more intense, especially those feelings of guilt. The topic of suicide loss deserves much more care and attention than I'm able to give it in this episode, but I really want to acknowledge its profound nature and the intense circumstances that those survivors, like my friend, are managing every day. Turning briefly to coping with spousal loss as an older individual. Um, depression is one of the most prevalent mental disorders amongst the elderly. Older people have a smaller support network, so losing their spouse is such a massive loss in part because they're most often the most important person in their life. Studies show that women and men react differently to being winnowed. Canada-US data shows that men are more vulnerable to depression after losing their spouse, but data from Hong Kong shows that women are more vulnerable. Denmark and Sweden showed no differences between gender. In one of the more recent North American studies I reviewed, although women were more susceptible to symptoms of depression after loss, the severity of the depression symptoms were much more in men. Two possible explanations given for this were that women are often responsible for their men's social support structure, so the loss of the spouse means the loss of the push to do social things. Another explanation is that women do most of the household maintenance in a certain generation, and asking a single partner to take that on when they've historically not done it before puts on an extra strain. Could this change with men becoming more involved socially and more involved in the home? Um, this is what it's like in our current society. Maybe it might change um, with future research. It'll be very interesting to see how that's going to go. The risk of depression in older men and the knowledge that the deceased are usually a main source of social support really highlights the need for programs for the older generation. I want to highlight one program that comes from my soon-to-be hometown of Nipua, Manitoba. They have a really amazing program called Men's Shed, which is branched from an international program that originated in Australia. The intent of this program is to provide men who are alone, lonely or grieving, an opportunity to get together and work on projects that benefit the community. They work on lots of projects like picnic benches and recreation equipment for the park. Working together gives them a way to make a difference in the community and gives them opportunity to share with each other about their own lives if they so choose. It's therapy and it's fun. I think that this is a model that needs to become a part of as many communities as possible to better the mental well-being of our men. So what if you're listening today and it's your partner who's in their grief journey? I'm hoping that you've already taken from this show so far some helpful tips for how to understand what your partner is going through on their grief journey. We also know that your place with your partner in their grief journey is to walk beside them. You're grief adjacent, but you're also an important part of the journey because as we've heard, every person who is grieving reports that it's the support of their loved ones that makes the process more bearable. The most impactful thing that you can do right away is being a good listener. This sounds like an incredibly obvious statement, like, come on, Dels, you went to school for almost eight years to tell us to be a good listener? There's got to be something more clinical and more complicated that you can give us. There must be some hidden secret in academia that you're failing to give us. Nope. I'm telling you right now that being a good listener is where it's at. Now, being a good listener is really hard. 
and something we have to continuously work on. I, in theory, practice listening for a living, and yet I'm still working on perfecting my ability to listen every day. But here's some things that you can practice to be the best listener that you can be, both with your grieving partner, but some of these work in everyday life too. First, when you see a need in your partner to talk, set an intention to become a listener. Sometimes we flow into conversation with our partner without setting an intention that we are taking on the listening role, and we miss things. You enter the space of the griever quietly and with curiosity. Your goal is really to try and understand them. Often, they don't want advice. They want you to witness the process by which they outwardly discover how they will make sense of their grief. Avoid interjecting or saying that you understand before you fully heard them. Silence is your most powerful tool. It's hard to stay present when another person is talking, and your attention will naturally wander. Gently drop back. This process may need to be repeated, and it's totally normal. Doesn't mean you're a bad partner. Doesn't mean you're a bad listener. It's natural for loved ones to ask how your partner is doing in their grief process. A helpful thing can be to rehearse your responses to these questions prior to attending something social. This way, you can choose for yourself how vulnerable you and your loved one want to be for others. You have the right to choose how vulnerable you are with other people. It will be very draining for your loved one to talk about their grief. They may seem even more depressed and tired after you talk, leading you to wonder if you actually did right by them. I assure you that you did do right and that this reaction is totally normal. Talking about grief is a mental and an emotional workout, kind of like when your body does a physical workout. You feel like you've been taken through the ringer, but the more you do it, the easier and the more beneficial it is. I really hope that you found something in today's episode that serves you. As we mentioned, grief is universal and it's going to happen to all of us at some point. I truly hope that when you experience your grief, that it comes with hope for a future where you can maintain a meaningful relationship with your lost loved one. And I hope that you can use your intimate relationship as a source of comfort and strength. If you have any questions, if you want a copy of my resources, or if you have a question for me that you'd like me to answer anonymously in my next podcast, I'd love it if you shot me an email at delcymartin at trueyoutherapy.ca. That's D-E-L-S-I-E-M-A-R-T-I-N at T-R-U-E-Y-O-U-T-H-E-R-A-P-Y dot C-A. Thank you for listening. And as always, I am so grateful for you to come into this brave space.